0: Hello and welcome to this late night primary reaction edition of the 538 politics podcast. I'm Galen Druck. Before we get going tonight, I want to take note of the really horrific news out of Uvalde, Texas today. It's a tragedy and my thoughts are with everyone affected. We'll perhaps talk about whether this string of mass shootings will shape public opinion in a future conversation. It's actually a conversation we've had numerous times in the six and a half years that we've been doing this podcast, but we'll see. We'll talk about it again and we'll see where public opinion goes. But let's talk about tonight's primaries. We have results in many of the high profile races in Georgia, Texas, Alabama, and Arkansas. In Georgia in particular, it looks like, in many ways as expected, Trump's endorsees have come up short. In fact, At the time that we're recording this at around 1130 at night Eastern, with some 80% of the results in in Georgia, it looks like incumbent Republican Governor Brian Kemp is leading his challenger, David Perdue, by about 50 points. Now, of course, those results could change once they are filled out. But it's clear that Perdue never came anywhere remotely close to unseating Brian Kemp. So let's talk about what this all means and some of the results in other states tonight. Here with me to talk about it is politics editor Sarah Frostenson. Hey, Sarah.
1: Hey, y'all. Late evening.
0: Yes, indeed. Also here with us is elections analyst Jeffrey Skelly. Hey, Jeff. Hey, Galen. Hey, everybody. And politics reporter Alex Samuels. Hey, Alex. Hello. So let's begin with Georgia. Now, we're watching a few statewide races there to see this Republican interparty battle play out. I mentioned the results so far in the governor's race. What other indications do we have of how this incumbent versus Trump endorsee battle is going?
2: Well, it looks like, at least when it comes to endorsing challengers to incumbents, Trump has not done very well uh, tonight. You mentioned the governor's race. It looks like in the attorney general's race that Chris Carr, the incumbent there, has also won by around 50 points against John Gordon, who Trump endorsed. In the Secretary of State race, uh, where Brad Raffensperger, who sort of infamously had a phone call from Trump, where Trump you know basically told him, find some more votes and put me in the lead just after the election. He is just narrowly above 50 percent right now. His race against Representative Jody Heiss. Which means if he can hold that position, which seems reasonably likely at this point, though there is no projection yet there, Raffensperger would not only win the nomination, but he'd avoid a runoff and not have to face Heist 101 in June. So, you know, those were the sort of the three big incumbent races where there was an endorsement of a challenger to an incumbent and in all three Trump has struck out.
1: And in the two House races where there wasn't an incumbent running and where Trump waded in, it's not necessarily bad news for him yet, but his endorsed candidates didn't clear the field, although they look likely to head to the runoff. So I do think the picture is going to kind of come more into focus for Trump. It won't necessarily have just been a terrible night for him in Georgia. And I think as Alex said on the live blog, you know, the bigger point here is maybe Trump's endorsed candidates didn't win. But, you know, someone like Kemp hasn't really distanced himself from Trump either. And so this question of whether or not Trump's losing influence in the GOP is kind of beside the point. He's not.
2: And, you know, we should also mention, you know, Trump did get a very easy win in the U.S. Senate race uh, on the Republican side because Herschel Walker, who he's back sort of from the get-go, very easily won the nomination for U.S. Senate. And also in the lieutenant governor's race, which was an open seat contest, the, the incumbent retired after sort of criticizing Trump and decided not to run for reelection, it Does look like uh, there's no projection there yet, uh, but Trump's endorsee, Burt Jones is just narrowly above 50%. And so he might be able to win out without having to go to a runoff. So, again, you know, it's very much a mixed bag, but at least when it came to endorsing people taking on incumbents, Trump did not do well.
3: So one quick thing I'll say, um, I mainly covered the Texas races tonight and Trump did have a really good night in the Lone Star State. I mean... Attorney General Ken Paxton who has a number of legal and personal woes dating back several years now handily beat land commissioner George P Bush and it's very likely just given that Paxton is a Republican running for a statewide seat in Texas he should really not have any problem in his reelection bid this November there are a couple other races Dawn Buckingham she was running to replace George P as land commissioner she has either declared victory or is you know well ahead in her primary runoff tonight as well. So at least in Texas, Trump had a pretty good night.
1: Yeah, no, I think it was you, Galen, who made that point on the live blog. Maybe it's more incumbents, you know, tend to do well versus anything Trump's doing in the background.
0: Yeah, I think it's a little bit hard to parse what's going on here, but that's part of our job. So in open races, it seems like Trump is able to have some significant sway. But when he endorses against an incumbent, in fact, in all of the cases in which he endorsed against an incumbent tonight, his candidates came up short. So is that the main takeaway that, like, incumbency is strong? Trump isn't stronger than incumbency. That doesn't mean that he's not influential in the Republican Party, And that his endorsement in an open race is ultimately something worth seeking for ambitious Republicans. What more is there to say than that?
3: I feel like Trump is winning even when he's losing. His candidates, his preferred candidate might lose a race, but at the end of the day, you know, I wouldn't say George P was a moderate Republican. I wouldn't say Kemp was a moderate Republican. So even though Trump was endorsing against these people, it doesn't mean that his brand of politics is leaving the GOP anytime soon.
1: There was this paper from 538 contributors, Dan Hopkins and Hans Noel from 2021, that was trying to kind of trace how Trump has redefined what it means to be conservative in the GOP. And we talked about this a lot when Representative Liz Cheney was ousted from leadership within the House and how like she's a small C conservative as a Republican, and yet she's very out of step with the party. And I think going back to your question, though, her primary coming up in Wyoming, later this season, she very well might lose that. And that would be an instance of Trump winning one of his bets on an incumbent, right? And so I do think to Alex's broader point, it's really hard to kind of suss out clean takeaways here. Because right, like here Paxton, a riddled with scandal incumbent goes on to win in his state, whereas, you know, Kemp handily wins in Georgia. But then by the same token, Raffensberger, who also, you know, stood up to Trump on the 2020 election claim, is in a much closer race. So it's really hard, I think, to kind of zero in on which candidates do well versus others. We've seen in polls that Republicans are willing to accept other Republican candidates who speak out against Trump, but there does seem to kind of be this threshold that's not necessarily clear. I think it's a little unspoken, but there's this idea that's prevalent anyway, that someone like Cheney goes too far, or maybe Raffensperger didn't have the same kind of upholding conservative ideals in the way that Kemp did. One could argue now that it's easier as a governor versus a secretary of state to kind of exact that influence in a state. But it's really hard to parse out, I think, all the different mixed signals.
0: Yeah, I mean, I think when you put it like that, there is a clear difference between the way that someone like Raffensperger or Cheney approached the 2020 election and the way that someone like Kemp approached the 2020 election, which is that Cheney wants to talk about it. She's on the January 6th committee. Raffensperger wrote a book about it. He came on this podcast to talk about it. Whereas Brian Kemp wants to talk about inflation, illegal immigration, transgender students in sports. He wants to talk about policy issues that Republican voters care about that are not the 2020 election. And so... In sort of pivoting away from the 2020 election, he's still very much in line with what Republican voters want. And he's not, in their minds, making the party look bad by relitigating the 2020 election, so to say. Obviously, Trump did battle against Kemp and Kemp stood up to Trump in a small-D Democratic way. But his politics since then have been different from a Raffensburger or a Cheney.
1: Absolutely. And in some ways, he's been very deferential to Trump. There was a press conference on Monday where he essentially said, Trump seems to have a problem with me, but I don't have a problem with him. Let's move on and doesn't really want to, you know, build out this enmity that Trump felt toward him either.
0: So those were the top tier statewide races in Georgia. There were a couple House races of note one competitive Democratic primary and then, of course, Marjorie Taylor Greene's primary. What can we take away from some of the House races in Georgia tonight?
2: Well, it looks like in Georgia's seventh congressional district that Lucy McBath will defeat Carolyn Bordeaux. So it was a member versus member race. They're both incumbents. But McBath's sixth district was redrawn to be very Republican. So she moved over to the seventh, which had a small part of her current district but Bordeaux actually represented about just about 60% of the current seat. But in the end, McBath pretty handily won this race, 63% to 31% right now. I mean, it just wasn't close in the end. And I think there could be a few factors behind that. I mean, McBath had a lot of outside help, about $5 million in outside spending on her behalf, whereas Bordeaux had basically nothing. And McBath outraised her. And I think also McBath just was like a higher profile a member of the Democratic Party. She had a lot of support from gun control groups. Obviously, what occurred today in Texas probably didn't affect uh, primary voting on the day of, considering, you know, when we actually got the news about it. But, you know, gun control is a big issue on the Democratic side. And I also think another thing that probably hurt Bordeaux was her support for basically a a move last year to make it so the House would vote on a bipartisan infrastructure bill before it voted on a social spending bill. She joined with eight other moderate Democrats on this. It kind of drew the ire of a lot of progressives. So that was also something that was maybe working against her as well.
0: This time last week, we were talking about a controversial Republican freshman actually losing his primary to a challenger from his own party. I think that there were some in the Republican Party and probably plenty within the Democratic Party who would have liked to hear the same news about Marjorie Taylor Greene. Obviously, that wasn't the case. She handily won her primary election tonight. Was there a similar effort to unseat her? And if not, why?
2: No, (laughs) there was not a similar effort. You know, in North Carolina you had, say, Senator Tom Tillis coming in and endorsing Cawthorn's challenger. Well, there's not a Republican senator now to do that in Georgia, but you didn't have Brian Kemp campaigning against Marjorie Taylor Green. There was just was not a concerted effort to defeat her on the Republican side, and in the end her main challenger only got about seventeen percent of the vote, so she very easily won renomination. It's I mean, I think it comes down to it. She just didn't have the same sort of scandals that Cawthorn did, especially things like talking about what other Republicans are doing behind closed doors and stuff about orgies. And then of course, Green also didn't go district shopping while the redistricting process was going on in Georgia, whereas Cawthorn was bouncing around saying, well, maybe I'll run here. And then the map changed. He's like, oh, well, maybe I'll run where I am currently and maybe lost some of that home support. So to me, it's just, Seems that Green just – she may irritate the Republican establishment at times, but they did not decide to go after her, probably because they would have failed, whereas Cawthorne had sort of a critical mass of scandals and things going on that made him more vulnerable.
1: Right. And not just the scandals. I'd point out that, you know, according to FiveThirtyEight's partisan lean metrics, Green's district is just a lot redder than Cawthorne's. We give it a partisan lean of R plus 45. Cawthorne's district under North Carolina's new map is closer to R plus 14. It's just hard to kind of see who Green's replacement would have been in a district like that.
0: I want to move on to Texas, but before we do it, I got to come back to this. I'm updating my results page right now. So 92% of the expected vote tally counted in Georgia, right? Brian Kemp's still leading by 51 points over David Perdue. We've said this is a mixed result Etc. Etc. that it's complicated because Brian Kemp's politics are still very much aligned with Trump's vision of the Republican Party, even if Trump takes issue with him. But like, at the end of the day, this has got to be somewhat embarrassing for Trump. Is there any sense in which this emboldens other people within the party who might buck Trump in certain ways? I mean, Trump literally spent a year and a half pursuing a vendetta against statewide Georgia Republicans and couldn't have failed more spectacularly.
1: Totally. But Doug Mastriano, that's my one pushback, Galen. I mean, I just, it's so hard. We want like this one moment where it's like, okay, this is it. The GOP is now going to come out of the closets and say, hey, Trump, we've had enough. But may I also point you to the press conference that Kemp was in earlier? And he's like, I don't have beef with Trump. Trump's great. I think for every Kemp, there's another Mastriano who wins.
0: I guess that's fair. I'm just wondering, like, I think the Republicans are happy about the direction of the party, policy-wise, in terms of Trump's worldview, things like that. But in terms of the man himself, at a certain point, he's not going to have that much influence within the Republican Party, whether Republicans come out and say goodbye or not, because either he will lose another election or win and then be term limited or whatever. Like, at a certain point, it's not going to matter as much. Like, are we getting to that point now?
3: I was curious about that too, Galen. Like, what happens if Trump himself is no longer the big political figure that he is currently, but Trumpian politics are still embedded within the GOP. Like, and is it just the case where Trump sort of passes the torch on to someone else? Like, I don't see that happening very easily. And if so, there's the question of like, who would that person be? Is it someone like DeSantis? Is it someone like Pence? I doubt it, but you never know. I'm curious because, you know, like you said, Trump cannot be in this role forever. I just don't know who like the obvious successor would be.
2: Yeah. I mean, I keep coming back to the point that we talk a lot about the endorsement influence. And I think that Trump clearly has some, you know, you just have to look at say the Ohio Senate race and it's no coincidence that JD Vance ended up winning that in part because Trump endorsed him. Vance was just sort of sitting in the low double digits, mid teens in the polls. And, ended up winning with Trump endorsing him sort of late in that race. So I do think that in a crowded field, Trump can have a big impact for a candidate. Vernon Jones, for instance, a former Democrat who really became somewhat well-known because of a speech he gave at the 2020 Republican National Convention, basically moved to a district where he had not previously represented any of that turf and looks like he's going to get into a runoff, basically purely because Trump got him to drop out of the governor's race and run in this congressional district so that it'd be easier to consolidate anti-Kemp support, which clearly failed. But the fact that Vernon Jones could make a Republican runoff, having been a Democrat for his entire life until a couple of years ago, with basically Trump's endorsement being the one thing he had going for him, I think should be a sign that there's some power here. So, you know, for me, it's just sort of the thought that Trump has some influence. You know, it's not like people just follow him like sheep. But I, I think it's there's influence there. And I also would caution people to read too much about, and God, this has become a refrain for me, the influence and in trying to connect what his endorsees do in primaries to like his future influence in the Republican Party in terms of like 2024. Like if Trump decides to run, I'm not basing his chances of success on how his endorsements went in 2022.
0: Yeah, no, absolutely. I wrote this on the live blog tonight if Barack Obama were to endorse Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez in a challenge to New York Governor Kathy Hochul, I don't think Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez would be the next governor of New York. However, I think that if it were constitutional and Obama ran for the Democratic presidential nomination in 2024, there's a damn good chance he would win it. So, The idea that, like, whether or not every person you endorse can succeed in their primary is directly correlated to whether or not you can win your party's nomination in a presidential primary is absolutely not the case. You know, this project that we're undertaking to track his influence within the party, I think, is valuable nonetheless. Like, we won't know if he's going to run or win until it all actually happens. But until then, the degree to which he charts the talent and priorities in the party is still interesting i'm glad we hashed that out a little bit more
1: Ah, mm. the first taste of rare bourbon you finally got your hands on that's nice at caskers.com we make this experience easy caskers is a one-stop spirit curator with an impressive selection of exclusive sought-after rare and household names in the realm of premium spirits and champagne Discover the top flavors of the year now by going to Caskers.com and using code WELCOME10 for $10 off your first purchase. Get $10 off your first purchase with code WELCOME10 at Caskers.com. Hey, I'm Andy Mitchell, a New York Times best-selling author. And
3: I'm Sabrina Kohlberg, a morning television producer.
0: Alex, let's turn to Texas. You mentioned Trump's endorsements there, but of course there are other runoffs. There are Democratic runoffs. There are other House races that we've been watching. Give us the lowdown.
3: Yes. So there were not any major surprises in Texas tonight, unfortunately.
0: Unfortunately? Were you rooting for a surprise?
3: (laughs) I love a good shakeup. It makes things interesting. I guess we still have an outstanding race in the 28th district, so we don't know where that's going to go. But, I mean, for the most part, at least most races were the person who was ahead in March handily beat their opponent this time around. So we had that with Ken Paxton beating George P. I saw that the New York Times recently called it for Rochelle Garza over Joe Jaworski. I hope I'm not mispronouncing his last name and that will be uh, on the Democratic side for attorney general. Of course, uh, Garza is going to have an uphill battle. Texas has not elected a Democrat statewide since 1994, but that race is finally settled in the 15th district. Democrats Michelle Vallejo and Ruben Ramirez are essentially tied at 50%, so we don't know where that race is going to go. And then the big race to watch tonight was the 28th district. Representative Henry Cuellar was going against Jessica Cisneros for the second time. They went head-to-head in 2020, and Cuellar... Barely won, and it seems like he's in a very similar situation tonight. I'm seeing kind of conflicting reports right now, but it looks like Cuellar has maybe like a couple hundred, maybe a thousand point lead over Cisneros, but it's kind of an open question on whether he can keep that. Cisneros did very well in the election day vote back in March, so I think there's an expectation that she might cut into that lead as we get more votes, but from what I'm seeing online people who are kind of predicting the results of this election are kind of saying, you know, it might be better to be Cuellar tonight versus Cisneros. So it'll be interesting if Cisneros had won just to see whether South Texas was ready for a progressive representative like her. But I mean, there's a reason why Cuellar, conservative as he is, has managed to represent that district Since 2005, you know, obviously he's doing something that's appealing to voters there. And as Jeff and I have written previously, South Texas swung to the right pretty significantly in 2020. So that was always going to be a net benefit for Cuellar and his reelection bid.
1: Yeah, you and Galen, Alex, were talking about it on the live blog for a bit, but I thought it was really interesting, the points you were making around how much South Texas has shifted towards Republicans in the 2020 election, and right, while this progressive versus moderate dynamic in the 28th has been super interesting and important to watch, it kind of has raised larger questions of like, what kind of candidate for Democrats, you know, would be the most competitive in a general election?
3: Yeah, and I think we're seeing some of that in the 15th district as well with Vallejo presenting herself as the more progressive over Ruben Ramirez. And again, they are tied. But the 15th district is arguably more competitive than the 28th district, just based on our partisan lean. I don't remember the numbers off the top of my head, but I think the 15th district is essentially even while Cuellar's district has a partisan lean of like D7 or D8 around that. So it will be interesting to see, you know, whether progressives can prevail in these races, especially since Republicans are really going to try hard to flip some of these seats.
0: Yeah, you're right, Alex. According to 538's partisan lean, that 28th district that's in the Rio Grande Valley leans Democratic by seven points, which is a little more Democratic than the 15th, but ultimately in a potentially red wave environment could be very competitive. And I was watching the Republican primary there tonight where former Senator Ted Cruz staffer Cassie Garcia looks like she's going to win. That race still hasn't been called. But she would be a formidable opponent in a part of the state that I was looking at some numbers tonight The counties that, you know, run along the U.S.-Mexico border on average shifted 16 points towards Trump between 2016 and 2020. You know, this is territory that has swung to a remarkable degree. We're all going to be watching this fall, whether it continues to swing. But if that's the case, Cassie Garcia could well add to the ranks of Latinas in the House Republican Caucus. We'll certainly be watching. So as much as this, like, progressive, moderate battle was interesting, neither of them may actually end up in the House when it's all said and done. Who knows?
1: Womp womp.
3: Womp womp. (laughs) (laughs) It's kind of the same story in the 15th District, too, though. I mean, Monica de la Cruz is a very formidable GOP candidate who has the support of the GOP congressional establishment. So it's, again, while we're talking about how the Democrats currently are neck and neck, it's a very real possibility that they lose the seat come November.
0: Yeah. I mean, it's worth mentioning that this primary in the 20th District between Cuerhara and Cisneros was seen a little bit as a referendum on the importance of abortion for democratic primary voters because Quayar has sort of been anti-abortion and Cisneros has been more pro-abortion rights. I mean, is there anything we can take away from this in terms of the significance of abortion or is it too specific of a situation in the Rio Grande Valley?
2: Yeah, I think it's dangerous to extrapolate from one race but I will say that the fact that this contest is essentially a repeat, you know, in terms of the, the how close it is of multiple races now between these two candidates because they faced off in twenty, you know, twenty twenty as well. The fact that abortion being such a live issue and the fact that there is a very clear difference between the two candidates hasn't really shifted things much might be an indicator that. You know, this issue, while important to Democratic activists, is not one that is going to just uniformly sort of shift votes. And the thing that it brings to mind for me is that while there's been a lot of talk about abortion as being an issue that's going to really affect the 2022 midterm election, I remain somewhat skeptical that it will actually move a large portion of the electorate. I think people are going to care a lot more about the state of the economy and inflation than they are abortion rights. Not that it can't be an issue that drives you know, base turnout, but if you think about the larger picture, that's something that – this has not changed my priors on that, if you will.
3: One thing that struck me as interesting, particularly in that race, is how establishment Democrats stood by Cuellar despite their promises to protect abortion rights in a potential post-Roe world. So Clyburn came to San Antonio to campaign for Cuellar recently, and Pelosi did a robocall for him in the runoff and called him a fighter for hardworking families. So I agree with you, Jeff, that it's hard to draw a conclusion from just one race on how important abortion rights is going to be, but I think it might be a harder sell for Democrats to tout themselves as this pro-abortion rights, abortion access party when you're actively backing an incumbent who is anti-abortion and one of, I think, the only anti-abortion Democrats in the House.
1: I think it's really going to matter for what the Supreme Court actually decides to in June. You know, we obviously have seen the draft opinion that was leaked. We don't know yet how that will change. And I think it's really hard to game out at this point what the ramifications of that would be on the midterms if the court were to overturn Roe.
0: All right, let's talk about Alabama and Arkansas quickly before we go to bed. It is already midnight here. So in Alabama, of course, the governor, Kay Ivey, has faced some primary challengers there. There's also an open Senate seat. What do the results look like so far? Has Kay Ivey avoided a runoff?
2: Uh, Yes, Kay Ivey has indeed avoided a runoff. She's at 55% of the vote the race has been called for her. You know, in the Senate race, it looks like the AP has just actually added Mo Brooks. There was already basically consensus that Katie Britt, who's at around 45%, would advance to a runoff, but that no one would clear 50%. And Brooks, it looks like, is probably going to be uh, the person that she faces in June when the two will meet. And it's interesting because... I think with Britt hovering around 45%, you know, that would suggest that she would be favored probably in a runoff because in theory, she only needs to get about 5% of the vote she didn't get, even though obviously a, a runoff's turnout can look a bit different from the first round in terms of turnout. But what's interesting is that Mike Durant, who it looks like is going to finish in third in this race, has been very critical of Britt in the last few days and even basically hinted that he was going to endorse Brooks if he failed to advance and Brooks advanced instead. So, you know, maybe there's a possibility that Brooks, who's just shy of 30%, can get most of Durant's 23 or so percent and make
0: it really competitive in the runoff.
1: You think Trump will hop back in and say, JK, I want to endorse Brooks?
0: Yeah, I was going to say, what does that mean from like an internal party politics perspective? Like, what are the dividing lines between Brandon and Brooks?
2: I mean, I think if you look at who has endorsed these candidates, so obviously Trump pulled his endorsement for Brooks. But Brooks, no matter what Trump says about Brooks supposedly being woke or something, Brooks was definitely someone who supported Trump's claims regarding fraud in the 2020 election. Basically is very anti-establishment. Britt on the other hand was at one point chief of staff for Richard Shelby, who is the longtime senator who's retiring from that seat and Shelby and his allies have backed Britt to the hilt. I'll say that a couple times fast. Backed Britt to the hilt. And I I I think it's not Maybe that clean because I think at the end of the day, Alabama's the state. I mean, look, Alabama Republicans nominated Roy Moore in a Republican Senate primary in 2017. So I just think Britt, for whatever reason, has done a pretty good job of even though she may have a lot of backing from sort of establishment politics in the state, clearly has not been pigeonholed in that way,
0: if you will. And OK, that's Alabama in Arkansas. It looks like. The former White House press secretary, Sarah Huckabee Sanders, is going to be the next governor. And first woman
1: governor of Arkansas.
0: And first woman governor of Arkansas. She handily won her primary there by, you know, 70-plus points. There was a primary challenge to the sitting senator there. It looks like it failed. It's been called for him. He got about 58% of the vote, John Boozman. I'm speeding through this a little bit because I want to do right by our Minnesota listeners who complained after we didn't mention the special election in Minnesota's first congressional district on the podcast earlier this week. Someone wrote in specifically saying, I know this doesn't have big national implications, but you're depriving your listeners not mentioning all the crazy drama that's gone down in this district and I am not one to deprive listeners of crazy drama. So, just before we wrap up now, several minutes past midnight, who would like to do the honors of explaining why the special election in Minnesota's first congressional district is bad crazy?
1: No scopes.
2: I think that the much of the sort of chaos of that primary connects to Jennifer Carnahan. So Jennifer Carnahan uh, at one time was actually chair of the Minnesota State Party, but she was sort of pushed out because she had a connection to a big fundraiser, I think. I, I forget what this person was accused of, but it was one of those very unsavory, terrible things. You know, I, I forget if it was sexual assault or if it was something else. It was, it was not good. She also happened to be the wife of Jim Hagedorn, who was the representative in this seat, who died. Um. So she is the widow. she decided to, to run for this seat in the special election to succeed her now deceased husband. And I think it's the scandal with Carnahan and also some of the things that she has said. She's had some like back and forth with Hagedorn's family over like unpaid medical bills that's like come out in the public. That's like kind of ugly. She said something after his death that came off as being sort of like, I don't know, uncaring about him that seemed really, really bad.
0: I have the quote. She was recorded in December 2020 saying of her husband, quote, I don't care. Jim, he's going to die of cancer in two years. So be it. What the f***?
2: Yeah, it's it's not clear if like this was, you know, one of the, like what exactly led to that comment. But obviously, whatever the context, most in most cases, that's not going to sound good regardless of, of the context. So... The good news for Minnesota Republicans is that she has only got about 8% in the special primary. And I think at one time she was viewed as even potentially like a favorite, and that is just not panned out for her at all. You have Brad Finstad and Jeremy Munson, who are running neck and neck right now. now. The race has definitely not been projected because it's extremely close, but the winner of that will probably go on to win the special election in August because it is a relatively Republican-leaning seat. But remember, this is for the old first that is actually going by the wayside with the November election. So you're going to have kind of a curious situation where the primary on August 9th is for the new version of the first. Now, to be clear, they are somewhat similar. They're both Southern Minnesota seats. But you have the special election on August 9th for the old one. At the same time, you're having the regular primary for the new one. So always a little weird in that situation.
1: Yeah. Are the same candidates running, Jeffrey, or is it like Alaska's open house race where it's a little, you know, some candidates are, some aren't?
2: So some in some cases, it's different candidates. One of the other wrinkles here, though, is that Minnesota, especially the Minnesota Republican Party, there's a practice of having an endorsement convention before the primary. And the Republicans especially tend to do what they call abide by the convention result. And so, candidates will drop out instead of continuing to contest the primary. And off the top of my head, I'll be honest, I don't remember what happened. I think it i think it was just the other day and it's just slipped my mind now at this late hour and I don't want to go on a long Googling thing. So, I'm just going to cop to not remembering off the top of my head who won the convention, which I'm very embarrassed about to admit. That's, that's like a wrinkle in there. So, you may not end up with much of a primary at all, actually. The, the exciting
0: primary might have been this one. Jeff, you mentioned, I just want to follow up, you mentioned that you weren't sure of what unsavory scandal had plagued uh, Carnahan in this race. It was that a friend and donor was arrested for child sex trafficking. It's crazy. In this case, federal agents seized $371,000 in cash, foreign currency, rare precious metals, and 16 cell phones, tablets and laptops from this person's home in December From this news report, it is unclear how much Carnahan and Hagedorn knew and when. So that rounds out the dramatic story that our listener was asking that we share with folks in our coverage of this race.
1: See how much we love you, Minnesotan listeners.
2: I couldn't resist Googling around while you were doing that. So actually Finstad and Munson, neither of them got enough delegate support at the regular convention for the regular upcoming primary an election and the new first to actually get the official endorsement from the party. So presumably that means they will both move on to actually run against each other again in August. But we'll see.
0: You know, we love an election and then we love a rematch of that exact election. Cisneros, Cuellar, this race, Trump-Biden 2024. Run it back. Run it back. Run it back. Run it back. All right. Well, is that it for tonight? Does anyone else have anything they want to share before we go to bed? I mean, you know, Grover Cleveland, Benjamin Harrison, run it back. You know?
1: I'm going deep there.
0: Okay. Well, with that, I'm going to say goodnight to all of you. Thank you, Jeff, Alex, and Sarah, for joining me tonight.
3: Yeah, thank you.
0: Everyone sleep well. Likewise. My name is Galen Druke. Tony Chow is in the virtual control room. Emily Vanesky is on audio editing and Chadwick Matlin is our editorial director. You can get in touch by emailing us at podcasts at 538.com. You can also, of course, tweet at us with any questions or comments. If you're a fan of the show, leave us a rating or review in the Apple podcast store or tell someone about us. Thanks for listening and we will see you soon.
1: Now streaming, only on
3: Disney Plus. My name is Taylor. Welcome to the Eras Tour.
1: Experience Taylor Swift's record-breaking
2: Eras Tour. Does
3: anyone here know the lyrics? Ruben! Taylor
1: Swift, the Eras Tour. Taylor's version. With four additional acoustic songs. Now streaming, only on Disney Plus.